yes, Friday, November 15th, 2019. Time for episode, I don't know, on the Barnhart Podcast. Every once in a while, we do an Ask Ann episode where I ask folks to say, what burning questions do you have for Ann that I can uh, ask Ann on the podcast and that she can answer? And sometimes I give her the questions in advance and sometimes I don't. So, Ann, are you ready to answer some questions? I was born ready, baby. Let's do this. Okay, so the first question is, why doesn't Ann do more Conversations with Ann podcasts where it's just Ann and a guest? Oh, that's a good question. Um, and I'm going to cheat. Mo- I'm going to say this is actually my question. And the reason I did that is because if anyone is with eagle ears is listening to this and saying, wow, this sounds different for a reason. Yeah, this is actually a, uh, a, a practical test. I'm doing this all on one computer tonight instead of three. And the whole point is I'm, I'm demoing out and proving out exactly the setup that Ann would use. But Ann, this is something you would like to do more often, isn't it? No, sure, sure. And it, it has largely been a function of logistics, um, getting getting me all of the goodies that you have. But then really, I think what you're what you're trying to um, what you're cr- trying to pin down is that I don't actually need all of the goodies that you have on your end that I could actually do it. The technology does exist for me to just do it totally off of my um, wonderful, wonderful um, laptop that was donated last year. And yeah, so if if you can if you can pin down the technology, then yeah, we we could do episodes where I have a guest and I just chit chat with a guest. What have we done? We've done we've done three. We did Super Mommy. We did um, well. The one um, with Super Mom, though, to be fair, that was with my entire setup here. Well, that's true. That's true, obviously. Um, then we did the the Bay McFarlane, and then we've done one episode with Mark Doherty from the Non-Vinnie Potchin blog. But yeah, I'm sure there's all kinds of other people. There's all kinds of very interesting people that we could talk to. So um, yeah, let's see if we can get the technology pinned down. And while we're at it, we might as well do an in the can episode, just in case randomly, you know, just thinking off the top of my head here, if you would have any reason that you needed to take a week or 10 days off then from doing a podcast, well, then we'll have an in the can episode. So, you know. And it's a practical test of all the technology. And um, yeah, you mentioned the the Bay McFarlane interview before. That was actually recorded here on my setup as well. And I, I set up uh, Bay calling in on one line and you on the other line. And then I went out and mowed the lawn for an hour and a half. And I, I came in, it just happened to be perfect timing that I came in just as you guys were wrapping up. And then I was able to stop record and then edit it all together. And then with you and Mark, it was going through an entirely different setup. And unfortunately you come into something called VoIP delay. So the, the uh. signal was going from wherever Mark was and I don't know, somewhere in the Western United States out to someplace in, in New York or New England or all the way over to Europe. I don't know what it was. And then coming back to your connection. And what happens is you get this situation where um, you, between when you start saying something or Mark starts saying something and between when someone starts talking and the other person starts hearing it, it can be three fourths of a second. But in that three-fourths of a second, somebody else starts talking. So it sounded like you were talking over each other. And both of you stridently told me, it's like, hey, I wasn't talking over the, over the other person at all. <laughs> it, that's not the way it sounded from my end. That's true. Uh, I, the, the recording was from the middle somewhere <laughs> or wherever the server was. I, I, I honestly don't even know where the – that was a web-based recording. Tried it out once to see how it worked, and honest, obviously it didn't work as well as it could have. So to heck with that. In my setup here – 
I had this grand idea that we were going to be at some point having three, four, five people on the podcast at once. And that was way over engineered, way too ambitious. And I have since come to the conclusion that as much as I want to make things audio wise as perfect as possible, honestly, this probably is, is as good as it needs to be. My, my gold standard is if you can listen to the podcast on just the cheap Apple headphones, actually the, the ones that come with the phones now are actually more expensive, but $20 earbuds at freeway speeds while you're driving, if you can easily understand the audio, that's, that's the goal here. And if, and if I exceed that, then great. And if there's a little more background noise and you've got audiophile headphones and it bothers you, I'm sorry, but honestly, this, this isn't uh, supposed to be an exercise in radio engineering and I took it too far. And, uh, in the process, I got to a point where what I was doing couldn't be replicated by you. So if you wanted to interview somebody else, if you had the opportunity to talk to somebody, then this didn't scale. So the setup I'm using right now, currently we're using wire. It could just as easily use Skype or even just a telephone because uh, you've got a Mac, I've got a Mac, I've got an iPhone, you've got an iPhone. You can actually take an iPhone call through the Mac. So you can, and I tested this earlier this week, recording the same way we're doing this right now, just a plain old phone call through the Mac, through this audio software called Audio Hijack. And it works just fine. Obviously it doesn't sound as good as using wire, but it records just just as well. So that's why I'm grinning. I am grinning ear to ear because I have finally converted you to my whole giving, giving cattle and corn market commentary interviews on my cell phone in the car, going down the highway, being rebroadcast on rural AM radio. And that's, that, that's my standard of, of understandability. So you are, you are slowly, but surely converting over to my my audio quality religion (laughs) and i'm and i'm laughing i'm laughing as you say that because i understand that even though i'm doing this at a much lower level of tech than i've been doing previously i can still take the audio after the fact and spend four hours mastering it as perfectly as i want to not that i have to but I, i don't sacrifice any of the ability to master the audio tracks after the fact as opposed to you calling into the to the cattle station on your on your cell phone, your your voice was running through a quarter million dollars of hardware before it went out over the airwaves. So, yeah. Let me also say, on behalf of Super Mommy, who I like and I want her to continue to like me, please don't spend four hours audio engineering any of this, please. I think that she might uh, that that might not go over too well. <laughs> I don't plan to spend that much time. I'm just saying I could if I wanted to be obsessive about post-production, but I just want to be on the record on this. I just uh, let, let super mommy never, never blame me for you going OCD on on audio quality on the podcast. (laughs) You know, that, that kind of, you know, the the whole potential for marital strife leads right into the next question. Actually Mm. in episode, in episode 98, you mentioned that soccer isn't a real sport. And I agree. Sadly, my husband likes soccer. Is that grounds for an annulment? Um, <laughs> that's, that's a good one. Yes. Yes. It, it absolutely is in the church of Bergoglio. You were, you were never married in the first place and it's just, yeah. <laughs> in fact, that the paperwork might already be filled out at your local parish. So <laughs> yeah, good question. Very tongue in cheek, but yeah. 
Oh, and I want I would that reminds me of another thing. So Bergoglio, Anabot Bergoglio has announced that he's gonna release a new catechism with all of these um environmental sins in them. And I just I just want to go on the record as saying that I flush even when it's yellow. I don't let it mellow when it's yellow. I flush every time. And so therefore, I'm sure that I'm I'm excommunicated like already from from that whole hot mess so i'm just saying if you flush every time um you're you're already excommunicated from the anti-church so you know i got that going for me which is nice if you don't flush when it's yellow it leads to weird problems with the discoloration in the bowl unless you're using chlorine bleach which can actually damage the enamel and therefore you have to buy a new bowl so actually it's more environmentally sensitive to just go ahead and flush because there's plenty of water as opposed to an buying a new toilet is more impactful and releases more manufacturing CO2. Why not and, flush every time? And, and pumping chemicals, be it bleach or toilet bowl cleaner, which is like, wow, that'll, that'll burn your face off, toilet bowl cleaner. So what? Yeah, you're just going to be like pumping bleach or toilet bowl cleaner into your toilet every other day because you're you're letting it yeah letting it mellow uh, this, is, this is ridiculous it's, yeah but i just i just want to brace everybody out there for that that you know the <laughs> paragraph number 666 of the of the anti-pope bergoglio catechism of the anti-churches you you have to let it mellow when it's yellow <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw that on oh, I saw that on Twitter. I don't know if it was yesterday or today about the the whole idea of amending the the catechism for in, sins against the environment. And somebody tweeted this morning saying, "I wonder if Saint Boniface is going to be charged after the fact you know, posthumously for ecological terrorism for cutting down an oak tree." And I replied, "This is assuming Francis even knows who Saint Boniface is." Probably not. And if he if he does, he hates his guts. And you know, the other thing kind of in a similar vein that occurred to me, I made a post about, you know, how the Virgin of Guadalupe has been completely, totally blackballed, blacklisted in all of this Amazon Synod crap. Our Lady of Guadalupe, who who converted the entire South, Central and some of the North American continent not mentioned one time in any of this, it, it seems to me that according to Bergoglio, Our Lady of Guadalupe is a colonizer and a, and a proselytizing supremacist and must be denounced at this point. I mean, hello, if, if, if just proof set number five billion two hundred and seventy eight thousand and twelve that we've got a big problem here houston um that the virgin the blessed virgin is now basically a criminal according to anti-pope bergoglio and the anti-church a proselytizing colonizer that that mother of god is so you know well she's an go. agent of imperial spain just like trump is an agent of russia <laughs> Somebody needs to make a meme of that, you know, the Blessed Virgin, agent of Imperial Spain. Fantastic. Absolutely golden.
Okay, well, back down to actual questions that came in from actual listeners as opposed to stuff mm, I'm mm, making up. Mm. <laughs> no, the, actually, the previous one did actually come from a listener. It was, it was tongue-in-cheek, though. Um, what trades do you believe would be the most useful or beneficial to learn or to work in? Anything that involves physical construction of actual things, specifically those relative to um, shelter, um, which big one is obviously plumbing, um, welding, woodcrafts, woodworking, I mean, just anything like that, anything like that at all, um, where you're actually making something. Um, you know, obviously agriculture, making food, and you know, that's that's my soapbox and that's my bread and butter, but it's not, it's not any sort of bias on my part. It's just common sense. It's why I got into the cattle business. It's like, you know, food. It's just people have to eat. There's no, there's no exhausting this market. There's no obsolescence in any of this. Um, despite what they may be telling you, look, everybody everybody is going to keep eating meat, period, full stop. And there's nothing wrong with producing meat. Animals exist. The entire universe, the entire physical universe exists for us so that we can know, love, and serve God in this world and be happy with him forever in the next. That's why all of it exists. That's why animals exist. They exist to be, they exist to be, um, to, for us to eat them or for them to serve us in terms of, you know, physical labor, so on and so forth, or at, at, at absolute minimum, like with giraffes, just so, just that we can see and observe their beauty and their awesomeness and say, wow, what an awesome and good God we have that he, that he made wonderful, wonderful giraffes. You know, I mean, it's the whole notion of, of, um, putting animals and, and animal agriculture, putting animals on the same plane as human beings is, is just overtly satanic. It's overtly satanic. And then um, trying to argue that, that um, it's, it's sinful for us to be, to be eating meat and so on and so forth. It's, it's frankly, it's sinful to not eat meat in certain contexts. It's sinful to not um, provide children with a good, well-balanced, well-rounded diet, which includes meat, meat protein, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, God engineered, like ruminants, cattle, for example, they eat things that we can't digest. They eat grass, they eat cellulose, and they turn that which would just pass straight through our digestive system with absolutely no nutritional benefit whatsoever. Animal, ruminant animals, cattle, eat and sheep, eat that. It passes through their rumens and it's and it is just miraculously by the grace and engineering of God transformed not only into something that we can eat and do get enormous nutrition from, but is, but is spectacularly delicious as well. So, I mean, it's just, it's spitting in God's face. It's absolutely spitting in God's face to um, deny these things, deny these truths. And the thing that I always want to remind people of is that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, ate meat, totally ate meat. I mean, 
what do you think was going on at Passover? What do you think he was doing? Was he saying, no, no, I'll just have some hummus? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. The Eating the Passover lamb, it's cooked into salvation history that human beings eat meat. After the resurrection, what is he doing? He's chill, he's chilling by, by the Sea of Galilee. He sees the guys, um, resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is like, yo, y'all hungry? You want something to eat? I got some fish going over here. You want to come over and have some breakfast? And he's, he's just, he's, he's noshing all the time. It's fantastic. We're supposed to be eating animals. We're supposed to be consuming animal protein. So back to though, um, so we, we talked about all the construction trades, welding, um, making physical things. Somebody's going to have to figure, refigure out again how to produce things like textiles. All of that has been completely shipped to China. It's all being done in China. Nobody in the U.S. even knows how to do this anymore. All of the factories have been basically at this point, most of the factories have been are standing empty and have been torn down and disassembled. Um, figuring out all of that stuff, all of that manufacturing stuff that um, that has been completely consciously with malice aforethought sent sent to China and sent elsewhere. Um, machining, machining is spectacular. Learning how to how to um, learning machining and and those techniques. Um, anything to do with um, petroleum. I mean, that's again, another rant. God created this planet with petroleum forming down between the crust and, and down in the mantle of the earth. It's a condensate of, it's a condensate mostly of methane and it trickle, it, it the methane molecules come together, form these hydrocarbons, form petroleum. It trickles up through the crust of the earth and fills in all of these voids and cracks. And that's how you get all these enormous petroleum reserves. It has nothing to do with ridiculous decaying dinosaurs or anything. That's just absolutely, that's ridiculous. It's a condensate of methane formed deep inside the mantle of the earth. The, it renews. It, if you drain an oil field, it refills after a period of time. Um, and this is this is fact. This is absolute fact. It's observable. But you, of course, they the whole um, peak petroleum thing and this being an an exhaustible, limited resource is all part of the propaganda. It's all nonsense. Um, and we're supposed to be using petroleum. God made the earth filled with petroleum for a reason. He wants us to use it. He wants us to use it for transport. He wants us to use it for um, energy, heat, um, absolutely to make plastics and, and, and petroleum-based physical commodities out of it. That's why it's there. That's why it's there. It's all for so that we can know love and serve God in this life and be happy with him forever in the next. And petroleum plays an enormous part in that. We have discovered how to use it. We've realized it's there and we would be remiss if we didn't use it. Now, of course, you should be responsible and not be like the damn Chinese and just let everything burn without any attempt at at you know filtering exhaust or anything like that but you know 
coal, coal, for example, we can build coal plant, coal plants now where basically we're, re we're capturing all of the quote unquote pollution coming off of it. We can filter the exhaust coming out of a coal fire plant to where there's basically nothing um, detrimental being spewed into the environment. I had the opportunity, um, I have clients in, in, you know, Oklahoma down in there who had, who were running stalker cattle on um, exhausted coal mines. They go in, they scrape away the top layer, they, they mine all of the the coal out of these coal deposits, they fill it back in and seed it to grass again. And, you know, within just a few seasons, you're running stalker cattle on it and you can't tell that there was ever anything even there. It's absolutely amazing. Um, and so there are responsible, clean, sensible, common sensible ways to, um, to uh, extract, mine, coal and petroleum and to burn those things and, and, create the energy that clearly is for is for the good of mankind again everything in the physical universe the physical universe itself exists for us so that we can live so that we can get to heaven and so the notion that we shouldn't be using any of these things is again it seems to me it's just spitting in god's face um and is and look look at the objective evidence who is it that keeps saying all this this stuff these freemasonic satanic creatures who hate human life who share in satan's agenda to um, thwart the existence of human beings. And then once human beings are here to just destroy their lives and scandalize them out of the faith. I mean, at some point, common sense just has to kick in and you have to look at who's, who's making these arguments. Who are these people and what ultimately is their agenda? Well, it certainly has nothing to do with the true telos, the true end of man, which is human beings achieving the beatific vision. I mean, that's just, that's not even it. And even beyond that, they are, they subscribe to the purely satanic agenda of trying to thwart people achieving the beatific vision, whether it be by scandalizing them out of their faith or, or um, thwarting their existence in the first place, which is the culture of contraception, the culture of uh, population control. Um, Keep, keep people from achieving the beatific vision by thwarting their existence in the first place. Um, so there you go. And, and what do you think, Super Nerd? What, what's on your list of careers? Well, in terms of you know beneficial trades to learn, one of the questions I, I was going to jump in there with is you talk about farming, ranching, and, and everything having to do with sustaining the ability to eat. How does somebody who didn't grow up on a farm, who doesn't have a ton of money to go out and buy a lot of land, how does somebody say from suburbia who's, you know, pining for green acres all of a sudden, how do they go out and get into the farming lifestyle or career? Yeah, it, it absolutely is a huge problem. And as you can imagine, this was a this was a key question and concept when I was, you know, teaching my live cattle marketing schools, and it still is, I still sell the DVD version of the cattle marketing school. The one of the main points I was trying to drive home to people over and over and over again is young people, especially 
you do not need to have, you know, like a full section of land to start with. You actually, in order to run cattle, you can start small and just kind of incrementalize your way up. It, it's almost certainly in this day and age gonna gonna require some debt at the beginning. But it's you don't need to be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in debt just to get started. That's all a lie, um, especially with cattle. Um, grain farming is another thing. I mean, that's and the way the way grain farming is now, um, where you can't even you can't even start unless you have some, you know, half million dollar brand new John Deere, which is which it, it's so evil because they're like they're making these things to be obsolete. They are making people sign contracts where you are not allowed to work on your own tractor. You can't work on your own tractor. It's like, it's like cars today. I mean, you never see people anymore these days, you know, with a brand new 2000, you know, 2018 Honda with the hood up on the thing, tinkering around under the hood because there's there's nothing you can do with with modern cars anymore. Um, you can't work on it. You can't. Um, everything is computer driven. You obviously can't do anything with a computer, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, it's even worse with the with the huge farm tractors. But you know, the other thing is is that <laughs> the dirty little secret, or that that John Deere doesn't want you to know, is that tractors that were built in like pre World War II totally still functional. You you just have to know at this point how internal combustion engines work, so on and so forth. You can buy these things. They're they're basically by and large to a certain extent they're they're indestructible in the way that like a cast iron skillet is indestructible you know i mean it's it's just this big hunk of metal and it works and yeah you do need you do need some parts you do need some gaskets and da 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 but for a lot of these things like caterpillar you can still get all the parts for caterpillars that were produced before before world war 2 so um, you can buy, obviously, secondhand um, used farm equipment. Um, you don't need enormous amounts of land, especially with cattle. It, it doesn't take much to get started at all just because the, the potential for making money per head on cattle just with marketing skill is so great that you, you really don't need to have a thousand head of cattle. I mean, you can make you can make a lot of money off of just a hundred head of cattle. You can make pretty good money off of 50 head of cattle and you're gonna have to work and you've, you're gonna have to put in some, some elbow grease and so forth. But you know, it's, um, it's all very doable. And this is one of the big problems is that this debt culture and people in debt and piling on debt and being absolutely convinced that they can't, they can't live without debt and that the only way to make any money is to constantly be leveraged to the hilt. I mean, I'm just watching headlines and, you know, there was on, um, it, it was big on the news aggregators, I think two weeks ago now, week and a half, two weeks ago, stories about farm suicides on the uptick again. And I'm just looking at this and shaking my head. My cattle marketing schools just, over and over and over again, telling the guys, listen, if the market goes up, if prices increase, 
capture the equity. Don't expand. Don't relever. Your ag loan officer is going to be on you like white on rice trying to get you to relever if you have any equity at all. You should be gunning to get out of debt as fast as you can. You should be gunning to capture that equity if the price of cattle goes up. I mean, I look at the price of cattle right now and I mean, the the price level of, of what cattle are right now was just incomprehensible just a few short years ago, meaning incomprehensibly high. It, it, it was fantastic. Right now w- was fantasy levels. It was considered fantasy levels for cattle prices um, just a few years ago. And now these guys are all in debt up to their eyebrows, can't make any money. Oh, you know, oh, woe is us. We're being oppressed. Like, what, what is the problem here? The problem is, is that the price structure like doubled or more than doubled. And instead of you capturing that equity, paying down your, your note and getting out of debt and just staying with the same inventory level in terms of head of head of cattle that you had before, you were dumb. You went and went all Vegas on the situation and levered yourself out the gazoo and and now now you're right back where you were before if the market pulls back at all you're broke you're committing suicide i mean it's just it's insanity people simply refuse to learn and that greed that just insatiable greed and the, the complete comfort with being in debt and miserable and um, with absolutely no thought of getting out of debt. And I think that you and I were text messaging about, you know, doing a financial show and talking about people being like upside down in car loans for double the brand new lot value of the car and things. It's just, what in the hell is wrong with people? And then I go, oh, well, yeah, that's our society. That's just this, this massive collective stupidity that, that people are just blinded by, by greed and the thought of, of easy money. And, e- and then when the easy money comes, that's the thing that blows my mind. The easy money comes. Okay, you're, you're levered out, out the gazoo on cattle. The price of cattle doubles in like a year. And y- you have, there it is. You've got your easy money. Congratulations. What do you do with that? Do you capture it? Oh, hell no. Put it all on, you know, put it all on black too on the ru- on the roulette wheel of life and then just watch it all just go away on the next spin. It's 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 maddening to watch people do it. But the consolation I have is at least a few people out there um you know, came to my schools and and the the folks who taught me the cattle business and um and took the advice and were responsible and did get out of debt. But on a percentage basis, the numbers are just so low. And it's, it's, I mean, when you see stories about farmers and ranchers committing suicide over money and things like this, of course your heart breaks. Were they dumb? Yes, they were dumb, but you don't, I mean, you don't wish that upon anyone. It's just ridiculous. So yeah, there you go. So in terms of trades, you asked me what I would recommend and I 
I, I'm a computer programmer. It, it's something that's in massive demand right now. Um, it, it's something where in this, what they call the knowledge economy, and I don't know how much longer this is going to last. I mean, if we have know, the, right? if we have the, um, the massive reset, the triumph of the macular heart, or even the precursor to it, it's, it's quite likely that uh, the internet and all, all that goes with it could be set back 400 years, in which case it's probably a really good idea to have a fallback plan and no podcasting would not be one of those because that depends on the internet. But, um, you know, the ability to write, um, that's, that's something that comes across or the ability to communicate. This is something that, uh, in in my highly technical field is a often overlooked skill, the ability to, um, communicate the technical to the non-technical people. So all, all the programmers in the world, Setting aside, you know, startup businesses where some clever programmer has an idea and builds a business around it, there's you're going to have to have people who can talk to the technical folks and and understand what they're saying and talk to the business folks. And the business folks are the ones who, for the most part, have the venture capital. They've got the ability to make decisions and invest. And the business people go all the way back to Babylon or before, mm-hmm. back to Egypt. I'm not exactly sure when capitalism, as it could be understood, goes go, would go all the way back. But people investing in businesses and making investments and, and trying to grow things definitely goes back a long way. And hiring someone who can help a business person uh, get more out of their business, whether it's uh, whether it's through computers to understand um, efficiencies and optimizations or to reach new markets or whether it's an accountant to understand cash flow and be able to optimize how to get to market. There's even a, in a non-computerized world, I think there's definitely going to be a place for what we call now the knowledge economy and knowing how to apply your brain to make things more efficient and work better. Even, even in agriculture, uh, there's going to be people, if you can understand, I'm not going to use the term horse whisperer necessarily, but if you understand how to make the farm work better, uh-huh. it's going to be it's going to be worth it to the, the person who, who owns the farm to keep you around because just having you around running things, he's going to get 10, 15, 20% more out, out of his investment than if you weren't there. So, well, you would be you would be working more as as a consultant, which is what I did, um, you know, because the the labor has to be on site and permanent on site. But I'm glad you brought up accountants because, um, you know, speaking about the triumph of the Immaculate Heart or events running up to it, one of the things that's going to change is obviously this tax regime is going to change. And you realize that accountants today in the U.S., most of the most of their billing hours are going towards, you know, calculating taxes and the tax regime. That's all going to go away. Um, after the triumph of the Immaculate Heart and when there is some sort of civilizational reset. So I think there's going to be a lot of accountants who are going to be out of business. And then circling back to to IT and, and your area of expertise, the thing that I worry about there, and, you know, shoot me down and tell me that I'm wrong here, um, is is just the saturation. There are so many people. I mean, it just seems like, Everyone, everyone and their, not their uncle, everyone and their nephew is going and getting some sort of a certificate or something and trying to get into code writing, et cetera, et cetera. And it just, I would be very nervous about 
getting into something where there's just so many other people trying to get into it at the same time. So I'll, I'll toss it over to you. And from my point of view, I say, bring it on. And the, I'll bring, I'll, I'll reference a book. Uh, I have this in the notes and this is a perfect segue into it. Um, I should know the author's name off the top of my head, but the title is so good. They can't ignore you. And the idea here is there's a couple of ideas. First off, uh, in terms of career advice, one of the worst things you could ever tell somebody is figure out what your passion is and follow it. Because if you do something you love, then you never work for the rest of the day, rest of your life, because it's always something you love. Yeah, that sounds wonderful on a greeting card, but that's not really how the real world works. Yeah. Find what you're good at and go sell that skill and get mm -hmm. better at it. And if you're good at computer programming, get better at it. And yes, there are a lot of these boot camps and, and uh, three week pro or not three week. Actually, there probably are some three week programs. Yeah, there I was are say, some three week programs. Yeah. I was going to say three month programs. Um, in in the, the part of the world where I am, there's a, a, a school called Centric. And it's like three or four months and you could become a, a .NET developer and be making websites and whatnot. And they get jobs. They're, they're low level jobs. They're not going to be paying six figures, but you definitely can, can get a foot in the door and that's good enough to, to then determine, are you the right person to stay in this field? I mean, if you like the idea of being in a field where every single day, 1% of what you know of how to do your job expires and you're going to have to continually learn, uh. if you're that kind of person, this is the field for you. I mean, lawyers have to constantly be, be reading and, and keeping up on, on case law so that when, uh, when they present cases in front of the, the, the judge, uh, they're not arguing something that's out of date because case uh -huh. law and precedent changes a lot, not nearly as fast as, as computers do. That said, I've seen some people come out of these, you know, short term boot camps that are okay for pushing HTML around a page and doing really basic stuff. But the, I've also seen a couple of folks who have become just superlative performers who are not just great programmers, but also go on to become international speakers and are really good at not just understanding the technical side of it, but being able to communicate this to other people as well. And the key factor that these people have in, in common, whether they went through a, a simple boot camp or they went through an Ivy League computer science program is they have intense curiosity and desire to learn. And this one person I'm thinking of who who did a career change, she was working at Disney of all places as, as somebody who's like, mm. I guess, helping at, at Disneyland in California and, and uh, was... I forget what field she was even in, but she uh, came across something with, with uh, computer with video games. And her interest was, how do you make that? How do you make a computer game? And that's how she got into programming. And now she went in a totally different direction with it. She's not writing computer programming, but as soon as she was accepted to this centric place, which is a three-month boot camp to learn how to do the basics of whatnot, she aggressively went after companies saying, I want to intern. I don't care if you pay me or not. I want to learn this stuff and get my hands on. And she wasn't trying to impress her brown nose. She was that hungry to learn. Mm -hmm. And that is the skill that you cannot teach among programmers. You either yeah. have that or you don't. And yep. somebody like that, you take the intellectual capacity to learn and the insatiable desire that you're not going to hold me back. I'm going to learn this stuff that's the person who's going to go a long way. And it's not just in computer programming. If you are a machinist 
and you have mm-hmm. the desire to be the best machinist there is, well, you might have some people in black suits show up and say, hey, we want you to machine some titanium for some stuff that you're going to have to sign this agreement that you never say that you ever worked on this for. And I actually do know somebody <laughs> who was in that situation. He started off machining stuff in the oil and gas fields in, in Oklahoma mm-hmm. and uh, ended up doing some, I think it he never told me the details, but just doing Googling and figuring things out. I think it was B1 bomber parts for landing gear and whatnot. It, it's stuff that you make maybe a few dozen exist in the world, or maybe it was B2s. I don't know. It, it was stuff that was definitely military-related. It was aviation-related because the materials involved. But if you are that good, knowledge of your skills will travel. So yeah. find something you're good at and get better at it. It doesn't. Exactly. Hurt, it also doesn't hurt to um, spread the word about your skills. And in that regard, there's also the there's a lot of truth that you don't really know something until you teach it. And well, what I was saying about you know your knowledge, your skill travels. Well, if you're also teaching other people how to get up to your level of skill, not only are you solidifying it in your own mind how this all works, but you're also inadvertently advertising your skills. And so word travels. Hey, I went to this workshop where this guy was talking about how to machine titanium and magnesium. Maybe we should hire him for this job down at this tricky thing that nobody can figure out down in Texas. Okay. Yeah. Those skills now, you're not talking about $50 an hour for machining. You're talking $250 an hour. That's plus right. Plus travel expenses. Right. Yep. It's, it's, and again, it's, um, it's setting yourself apart and looking looking around and looking at the culture and and saying how do what can i do what what is everyone else lacking well a lot of them are lacking any sort of initiative independent drive you know the the young people today i'm shaking my fist get off my yard young people today <laughs> young young people today that with their sense of entitlement what what is a corollary of that? If you've got this this sense of entitlement, what are you not going to do? Well, you're not going to work your ass off because you you think you're entitled. You think you're entitled to make two hundred thousand dollars a year falling out of bed, and the, even the thought that you should that you should work hard, that you should strive for anything, is completely anathema to a lot of these kids. So there's there's one thing obviously right there. Um, Pitch yourself against that culture of entitlement, and you you will you will um, outperform them. I mean, it's just inevitable. You will outperform them. Um, and then the other thing, hearkening back to something you said, is is look at what what other people in in the job marketplace, especially you know, talking about younger people, because that's that's obviously what this conversation is driven toward. What what are they just no good at? And it's like what Super Nerd said, communication first and foremost. But a lot of these kids have just a passing familiarity with the English language, um, cannot write cannot write in in grammatically correct coherent logical progression and so if you can write right right there you've got a leg up on everyone else and then boy if if you can speak and write whoa boy you you've got the the world is basically your oyster i mean how pathetic is it that you know i can i can retire and make 
make a living and pay all my bills and everything off of donation, just off of donations, just purely off the fact that I can write and that I can speak extemporaneously. I mean, that's, that's kind of sad. It's a, it's a, it's a commentary on our society and our culture that this, this simple skill set of being able to write down your thoughts in a coherent way, um, somewhat deftly and you know my prose isn't even deft in fact i i avoid that my my prose is is consciously written in order to be blunt and clear and um communicate information and have the reader grasp it the first time and then hopefully retain it um this is a skill set that most people who were literate a hundred years ago had. If you were literate, you could write, you could compose, you could compose English prose. These kids today, I mean, it's just everything's emojis and and they're completely unread. I mean, they literally do not read anything. They do not read books, etc. And so they don't have any familiarity with their own mother tongue. So they can't even see or hear when when things in their own mother tongue are grammatically incorrect or are just you know inelegant in terms of their in terms of their syntactic in terms of their syntax or construction, you know, I mean, there are extremely limited vocabularies, et cetera, et cetera. So hone in on that. And that applies to every career path. It, that, it, it's just, that's just across the board, whether we're talking about you being a machinist or, or whether or not we're talking about you being, you know, some sort of an academic or something. All the way across the board, every possible career path, an emphasis should be placed on language and the ability to use language, and um, just none of that is taught anymore at all. So that gives anybody, no matter what they do, a leg up. Well, and don't forget also, depending regardless of, of what field you go into or what, what skill or trade, um, intelligent leisure activities. I think I've mentioned before the mm -hmm. whole idea of studying literature, whether it's something, whether you're a writer or not, whether you go to college or not. I mean, it used to be the college uh, education, the, the certification in letters was studying the great books and discussing it. It wasn't right. going through four years of some um, politically correct uh, gender fluid instructor teaching you something and getting you uh, a, a diploma at the end of the at the end of four years and incurring eighty thousand dollars in debt I've heard it referred to that the liberal arts education was meant to give educated people the ability to speak about literature and intelligent concepts over cocktails or whatever and a lot of these people used to be you know the the nobility who who ran society or they ran industry and so that when they got together on a friday or saturday night and and talked they could talk about literature they could talk about art they could talk about ideas and they had the necessary vocabulary and concepts to carry on these discussions intelligently and whether you're a farmer or a machinist or a computer programmer having all of those skills and abilities to speak about art and society and history. Uh, anybody who's listened to the podcast knows that I, I have an affinity for Roman history, and that's why I started referring to Bergoglio as the junior bishop in white. It refer, it's a hearkening back to the reference of uh, Augustus versus Caesar, 
I mean, Augustus was just the senior Caesar. And, and when he became the top emperor, then the junior emperor was the Caesar. And these, these corollaries, you know, you study history, you're studying human nature. You study art, you're studying a reflection of human nature. Uh, I've mentioned the, the uh, instructor who, from whom I've learned so much about opera, uh, Professor Greenberg. You can go on Audible or the teaching company and get his stuff. One of the concepts that he stresses a lot is um, art or music, in, his, in, in this particular case, is a mirror of culture. And you're going to see repeating concepts in, in, in art and literature and, and all this over time because human nature doesn't really change. It might swing from left to right like a pendulum, but human nature is the same. And so regardless of what your field is, having this fluency and being able to understand human nature and communicate, and ultimately this, I think we were all, we were branching off of the concept of communication here. And if you want to be able to write coherently, if you want to be able to speak coherently, it really goes back to reading, whether it's yeah. visually reading a book or if you're like me and you're partially dyslexic, so audio is the better way to take in books. I'm constantly listening to whether it's long form podcasts or audiobooks. I'm taking in a lot of concepts. And so being able to to have that in mind and then discuss it intelligently, it's never going to hurt. And in a lot of cases, even if it seems tangential or could never apply to your to your business, it certainly can be useful. Or at the very least, if you end up in the military as an enlisted quartermaster, uh, you get to argue Shakespeare with the uh, ensign who just graduated from uh, the University of Colorado with a degree in English and embarrass him in front of the whole bridge. Not that that ever happened to me, but... <laughs> Not that that ever happened to you. <laughs> well, and what I, w what I would also say is that it isn't just, I don't think it's just merely enough to read any old thing. Um, I see a lot of people who, who just read they, they read, but what they're reading is absolute garbage, you know? I mean, just garbage um, fantasy fiction, garbage sci-fi, garbage, um, you know, just garbage romance novels, tr just trashy garbage like that. And that's, that's not helping. Um, what's really interesting, an example of this is um, Jane Austen. So Jane Austen was 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 active and wrote her six novels in within the first 15 years of the 1800s I think and um, one of the one of the big hurdles and obstacles that she had was that these these novels that she was writing were considered just lowbrow trashity trash garbage and I mean, we all sit here and now if you, if you, oh, if you read Jane Austen novels, you're some sort of an intellectual elite now. You have to understand when Jane Austen was writing those novels, she was considered the lowest of the low. I mean, that's, that's how far we've come um, or as, as that's how far we have descended. Yeah, that, go back and uh, look at, see who else was writing books at that particular point in time. I mean, it wasn't Chaucer anymore, but but it was. You still had people like C.S. Lewis and 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 others who were writing real literature. And okay, fine. I just outed myself. Of, no, not C.S. Lewis. Okay, you I just outed myself of not knowing the timeline here. But the the point is that at at the point in time when Jane Austen was writing books, there were definitely elite, awesome authors writing books. Not that I know who they are at the moment, but they it was <laughs> happening. But yes, Jane Austen was lowbrow. 
Jane Austen was very, very lowbrow. I was struck when, um, um, you know, good grief, it's been it's been 20 years ago now when uh, one of my grandparents died and that that was, you know, that the house was empty and you go in and you start you start going through things and you start going and go through all of these bookcases and and, you know, pieces of furniture that is filled with books and you know, these, these people were just book after book of, of poetry and things like that. I mean, who among us, I mean, I have to admit, I've, I don't partake of, of much poetry at all. It's never been something that I've been able to acquire much, much of a taste for. Um, but, you know, to, you know, 150 years ago. So, you know, my, great grandparents and great great grandparents were settling Kansas in the 1850s basically 1850s and 1860s and they're all sitting around every night and they're they're reading poetry and and fine literature and so on and so forth and you know they they're all they're all st have studied latin and and so forth and we're talking about extraordinarily protestant people you know everybody studied Latin. All kids were taught, were introduced to Latin um, just as part of eighth grade education. You know, it just, it's really remarkable when you went to go through the libraries of your ancestors and see what these people were, were partaking and absorbing and just to realize how, <laughs> how sorry and pathetic we all are, relatively speaking. What do, what do we read? We, we garbage, garbage sci-fi and the news. I mean, that's, that's all most of us, you know, consume or, you know, teenage vampire novels and, and Harry Potter, um, leave aside the fact that Harry Potter is evil, occult, very, very bad. It's also spectacularly poor prose. It's just, it's just awful. And yet it's considered to be, you know, the, some of the greatest, the greatest prose being, being written within the last, within the last three decades. I'm, I'm sorry, but it isn't. It's just, it's absolutely awful. Um, and nobody has any sort of appreciation for this anymore, sadly. I've heard it said that the great thing about Harry Potter is at least kids wanted to read it again, but I've got to take exception to that. If that's what takes kids to get interested in reading i'd rather them not read at all yeah and i want to loop back to a question that i had hovered as the next one to ask but i think we've more or less answered it what advice do you have for somebody wanting to get into a given industry or trade find something you're good at and get better at it and then yeah. teach it if if possible i mean I, not all not all trades are are they're not all going to lend themselves for you to be able to teach what you know. Then again, as long as YouTube is around and they decide that your videos are not uh, costing them too much money. I mean, there that's one great thing. I'll have to find this video and put or find this link and put it up. But uh, YouTube is creating a, a whole series of people who are, are learning how to do things and, and become experts without ever going to school. You can, mm -hmm. you can become a master plumber just by, following a video and showing seeing seeing people demonstrate how to do this and i don't have enough guts to really do this all myself but you know all y'all men real men out there don't laugh at this but okay so I, I changed like the the flapper assembly in the toilet and i didn't want to do this at first but then i watched a couple of videos and it's like oh 
this is easy. I'll go do it. Yeah. And then when it was done, it's like, hey, that was a lot easier. Let's find something bigger to work on here. And then I remembered I'm actually good at computers. But the whole point is that there's a lot of stuff. And in, in even some of the folks I've had come over to do some non-trivial work in my home, whether it's electrical or, or heavy-duty plumbing or what, whatnot, if it's something they've never done before, they just go look it up on YouTube, watch somebody do it, and they're like, oh, okay, I get it, and I'll do it. And I probably could do it too, but um, for the moment... <laughs> For the moment, I'll I'll just work on my computer, and, and I, this is something I, I know that if I screw up a, a program, I can just revert back and, and do it again. I don't want to make a big mess plumbing-wise and whatnot. But if you have a little more adventure in that respect, there's a lot you can learn. There's Everybody loves making educational videos. I shouldn't say everybody, but there are, there's a lot of people in a lot of fields. And specifically, there was the, the story of this one seven-year-old kid I don't know how this happened, but he got interested, found a video on, on YouTube about making cakes. And within three years, at, at 10 years of age, he's like a master baker at this point, almost. Mm -hmm. And and creating stuff that's making professional bakers saying, how in the world did you do this? And he just went down a rabbit hole and learning how to do baking stuff and, and basically doing the whole Julia Childs, but baking uh, applied area, just going through all that on YouTube. Again, it's, it's that whole idea of having an insatiable curiosity and, and wanting to learn a particular field, not unguided curiosity. I mean, the internet will send you straight to hell if that's your, your problem. But if you have a focused curiosity, I want to learn how to make a, a perfect um, egg souffle. There's, yeah. There are definitely master courses on YouTube to teach you how to do that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I that's I use YouTube now as my main go-to for for cooking. If I'm trying something new and if I'm not exactly 100% certain on a given technique, well, that's the first thing you do is you go you go look up the dish or what you're roughly trying to make on YouTube. And not only is it there, but like two dozen separate videos on every single possible thing you could you could ever want to do um like this year for example this is a great example thanksgiving's coming up um i'm resigned this year that i am i had some brined don't don't laugh i mean i guess it's not funny but i had the opportunity to have brined guinea fowl I mean, how often do you get the chance to have guinea fowl, right? And I, I eat this. I'm eating this. And it's just absolutely delicious. And I say to myself, this has to be brined. Because I've heard about this thing where you take poultry and you soak it. I've seen this on America's Test Kitchen and all that, but I've never done it myself, where you take poultry and you soak it in a saltwater solution for several hours. And it just transforms poultry into this juicy, delicious, flavorful, yum yum. And so I'm eating this guinea fowl. I'm like, dude, this is fantastic. And so I ask, has this been brined? Yes, absolutely. Well done. We totally brined it. And I said, all right, that's it. This year for Thanksgiving, I'm brining the turkey. I'm brining the turkey. And so I get I go on the internet and okay, how exactly do you do this? And what exactly is the are the differences in preparation methods for roasting, uh, stuffing and roasting a brine turkey? How long does it take? What you know, I've already got the whole week of Thanksgiving mapped out. You know, you go you go get the turkey on Tuesday, um, you brine it Tuesday, 
to Wednesday morning. Then you have to let it dry out. You have to put it in the fridge and just let it dry all day Wednesday. And then you're ready to go Thursday morning, stuff it, put it in the oven. So I've got everything mapped out and I'm good to go. But, you know, it was so good. But I, I wasn't I wasn't 100 percent sure how exactly you do this. Oh, and the other thing that's funny, I had to go buy. Um, I was trying to find a bucket that was big enough and I couldn't find a bucket nearby. And so I ended up buying um, a clothes hamper. And so I'm going to I'm going to brine it in a plastic, you know, obviously clean scrub the inside of the plastic clothes ham- hamper out to within an inch of its life, I'll brine the turkey in it. And then when I'm done, I'll, I'll have, I'll have a nice new clothes hamper too. So it's, it's a win-win for everybody. But again, how do you find all this information? It, it used to be even, you know, when I was 20 years ago, when I was in my early twenties or in my teens, um, you would go grab the joy of cooking. You'd go grab your joy of cooking cookbook, which contained a lot, a lot of information. But now the go-to is just go to YouTube and you can, you can watch a video of everything. And you're, you're so right that people are just, people love um, to share information and knowledge and expertise that they have. One thing that I've been watching a lot of on YouTube recently is there's a channel called um number file i believe and it's just these you know 8 10 12 maybe 15 minute long videos each covering a different specific topic in mathematics geometry whatever and you know it's these math nerds and they're all super cool and they're all just enthusiastic beyond belief so i mean you know there's there's these math nerds who just want to have somebody put a camera on them and have, and they want to explain, you know, the Fibonacci sequence, or they want to, they want to explain, um, I don't know, some, some prime number sequence or something like that. And you, you just watch these. It's absolutely fascinating. And, you know, you're not going to be, you're not going to be a PhD level a mathematician mathematician or anything like that but you can learn an enormous amount of stuff and it's a it's a if you have free time and you want to you want to quote unquote waste some time or you're you know crawling into bed and you're winding down and and you want to watch something to maybe you know get you to on the on the on the road to falling asleep as we do with reading you know it's the same thing people read before bed it's kind of the same idea you know watch watch one of these mathemat- mathematics videos and that's a that's a great thing to do you're you're not getting stupider you're getting smarter and i mean it's just it's it's that or read read garbage or he- heaven forfend the very very worst play video games i mean come on you know you just you just see that people's brain power and capacity to think is just being sucked out by these by these wastes of time and and and, you know i don't know if i want to go all monumental conspiracy theorists on on this stuff but it, it just seems to me that there has to be if not on the human level, then on the preternatural level, a calculation in all of this, in you know, getting people addicted to not just social media but video games and stuff like that, 
and just trying to to get people as dumbed down and stupid and wasting people's time and keeping them away from not just doing you know good good um good activities but also keeping people away from prayer too how many people do you know that say i don't have any time i don't have any time to pray and yet you know the the i don't even know what video game consoles are called now the xbox 4 or whatever is sitting there is sitting there in front of the television yeah i mean seriously you've got time for that but you don't have time to pray your rosary really seriously um so Again, I was about to say it's Xbox, PlayStation, and, and Nintendo. But as soon as you said version, I was like, I have no idea. I, no I just idea, I just yeah. know that Xbox runs a Windows kernel and PlayStation runs FreeBSD, and I don't know what Nintendo does. But clearly, you see my my level of interest there it has nothing to do with the games. So, yep, exactly, exactly. And again, if if someone was was going to say, I want to I want to get into writing code for video games, well. Actually, there are a lot uh, of videos for that online as well. Yeah, I'm sure there are. Is that a, is that really how you want to spend your life? Really? I, even if you can make money doing it, even if you can, even if you can, you know, support a family doing that. I mean, at a certain point, you just have to ask yourself: Is this is this a morally admirable and virtuous way to uh, to spend your life? Is this how you is this is what you want your career to be? I I. I can't see that. And if I had if I had kids and they were saying, "Yeah, I want to go learn how to write video game code." I'd be like, uh, "Can we sit down and talk about this because I'm just I am not impressed on a moral level with that at all. It seems like you're not contributing anything that's that's clearly and decisively good to the world at that point." But I would encourage to the point of saying learning the prerequisites that would be necessary for learning how to get to the point where you could write video games, but up to a point where you, if they really have an interest in programming, there's going to be a point where you can say, you know, you could do video games and make $125,000 a year, or you can go into systems programming and network analysis and security and make twice that. Mm. And then you actually, it it can be redirected. You would be contributing something that could in theory be good. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it can be redirected and not, all video games are bad, but it's like saying not, <laughs> I mean, okay, maybe some are less evil. Let's put it that way. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let you get away with that. <laughs> In the sense that there, there's always going to be a legitimate case for recreation and, you know, playing uh, Settlers of Catan or something like that is not necessarily a bad thing. It, it requires some mental activity, but it's completely different than trying to figure out why your mobile app isn't logging into Facebook the way it's supposed to. Not that you give a, a rip about Facebook, but that's what the client wants. Um, and they've done something to their app that you can't figure out. But the, the point is, it's just a mental changing gears, go do something else for a minute. And you could get the same effect from just going outside and walking around the block, but yeah. getting it's getting cold this time of year, so... Yep. Or playing with your kids or playing with your dog. <laughs> Just any, anything. Absolutely. Go to the gym. Yeah. There's there's a lot that you can do. Yep. Yep. Um, the next question, and I think we're going to probably just do one more for this uh, set, or we'll, we'll see. Okay. Um, how does one go about purchasing and owning a home 
without getting trapped into absurd mortgage levels. Um, only buy as much house as you can pay off on a seven-year amortization table. That's my universal advice there. And you say, well, Anne, that's impossible. No, actually it isn't. Um, rent and save. Save, 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 save. Get so that you can make a nice down payment. And then don't, don't even calculate a 30-year mortgage. Don't even calculate that. Don't even calculate a 20-year mortgage. Don't even calculate a 15-year mortgage. Calculate a seven-year mortgage and only buy as much house or condominium or whatever it is as you can pay off, pay off 100% on a seven-year amortization table. And that's, that's my advice and I'm sticking to it and it's coming straight out of scripture, y'all. That is the... Old Testament Jubilee cycle right there, um, seven years. And if, if it takes longer than seven years, then you're too heavily leveraged. And remember that um, mortgages in the United States were capped at seven years until after World War II. It was only after World War II that they went to 10, and then they went to 15, and then they went to 20, and then they went to 30. And now they're getting ready to go to 40, and the Japanese have been, have been writing 100-year mortgages for decades. And we all know that the Japanese are at the tip of the spear of everything that's wrong with, with humankind, pretty much. So, um, yeah, we we need to learn. Go countercultural. If you want to be countercultural, baby, seven-year amortization tables are about the biggest, most rebellious thing that a young person could do today. But I'm telling you, I mean, think about it. You would own you would own your home 100% outright after seven years. You've got full equity. Then you know you've got kids. You got a bunch of kids, and you need a bigger house. Okay, you've got all the equity in in the first house you plow that into the bigger house then if you need if you need another seven years um you've got a relatively small mortgage payment again on a seven-year amortization you own the whole thing in seven years if you think about it if you start doing that in your 20s and you go through let's say three iterations of that you own a big, big house outright long before you even turn 50, long before you turn 50. And so, and then what do you do? Well, now you've got a bunch of grandchildren in theory, and you can either keep the big house, which you have no mortgage payment on anymore, or you can then start ratcheting your way back and start downsizing, sell the big house, pocket a bunch of cash, go pay cash for a smaller house, or go pay cash eventually for a condominium as you get older. But the, the thing is, is that you're out of debt and you've got equity and cash is king and you don't owe anybody anything and no bank is coming and saying, we're calling your note or anything like that. Remember, what does it say in scripture? The debtor is the, is the lender's slave and it's the absolute truth. Get out of debt and the, the template and how we're supposed to do this and how we're supposed to handle these sorts of things is right there in scripture. It's right there in the Old Testament, seven-year jubilee cycle. So never borrow for any lo anything longer than seven years. I think a larger, uh, more applicable way of saying that, even if, for, for people who heard that and kind of rolled their eyes saying seven years is really aggressive, stay within your means. 
Yeah, yeah. It is, it is way too much a feature of, of modern American culture to spend what you make. How about um, you save 30 to 50% of what you make? Yeah. Just because you make $100,000 doesn't mean you need to spend 100 to 120 because the bank gives you lines of credit. How about trying to live on 40? Yeah. So and you don't be- have the fanciest cars, the biggest house, the flashiest this, that, or the other thing. You also will be out of debt when you're 35 and 40. What is that sin called? It's called avarice. Avarice. Do not be avaricious where you have to have all the material stuff right now. Um, Absolute great point. There's so few people left today that are willing to live beneath their means in, in our, you know, post-Western, post-Christian society. Almost no one, and certainly none of these young people. I mean, they're the opposite. They they have this entitlement mindset. They think the world owes them a quarter million a year just because they exist. And then they might deign to go in and, and go to a job somewhere and work. Um, and no matter how much they make, they will spend reliably 15, 20% per year more than that. So yeah, it's, you've got a huge leg up on everyone else. If you can just go against that grain and uh, not make the same mistakes as, you know, the post, the post-Christian, the, the, the baptized pagans are making. Yeah. Don't buy the latest, fanciest stuff, you know, electronics. Um, I may not be the best person to listen to here, but this is on that particular point, but this is actually what I I have to buy for what I I use for work. Um, Don't buy the fanciest cars. I've just got a plain old Honda. It's a great commuter and it's actually kind of uncomfortable, but it's going to last for 20 years. Uh Um, Don't buy things that depreciate if you can avoid it. The things that do appreciate electronics or cars or things like that, get what is necessary, not what's flashy in, in, in terms of necessary uh, or in, ter- in terms of what's flashy. I mean, you know, smartphones and all that stuff, those things are getting ridiculously cheap now. So you don't need to over, overly spend on it. And honestly, why even spend for it anyway? Um, try to get to the point where the only debt you've got or the only line of credit you've got is on is your mortgage. That is backed by an asset. So if you yeah. if things went wrong, you could take an equity loan on it if you had to. You could flip it for cash and not not be in the hole. Don't be. Try to buy your cars straight out. Uh, yeah. Try to get your your college loans paid off as aggressively and quickly as possible. Try not to live in debt. I mean, not to go all Dave Ramsey on you, but he that's one part where he's actually got it right. Don't be in debt. Yes. That opens up so much possibilities just simply not being in debt and owing things, the debt can't compound for one thing. Yep. But like Anne was quoting the scripture, you are the servant of, of, of the uh, lender. The lender. The yeah, borrower is the, is the slave of the lender. Yep. Right. So, I mean, you don't want to be in slavery. Don't, don't borrow money or be smart about how you borrow money. Yep. Exactly. Uh, it just seems common sense, and we've done other shows where we've kind of gotten into these topics, but it's good every once in a while to just rehash those same things again. And the other thing, you mentioned student loans. How about just not even not even go there? Um, there's not much um, in terms of mainstream university, universities today that um, unless you're unless you're looking at medicine, engineering, you know that those those hard, hard um 
skill sets and careers, you know, anybody, anybody who permits their child to go to, go to a university and major in, you know, women's studies or any crap like that. Yeah. I mean, you should be, you should be strung up by your thumbs. You, you cannot permit your children to do things like that. It's just suicidal. And there's one, there's actually one discipline that I want to bring up, especially in the context of our audience that just simply does not work right now and is incredibly ill-advised. And that is a layman thinking he's going to go get a degree in theology and that that's going to be, that's going to employ him and support a family or anything like that. The truth of the matter is, is that right now that that's just not the case. You cannot, you cannot assume that. Um, I, and Personally, it seems to me that theology degrees should be reserved for, you know, religious um, monks, priests, maybe some some nuns, maybe. Um, but why do why do laymen need to be going and getting degrees in theology? If you want to study theology in your own, you know, independently, as as we were talking about before, you know, what is your reading in the evening, so on and so forth. Well, that's absolutely wonderful, obviously. But the thought that you can just go get a bachelor's degree in theology and that you as a layman are going to be able to support yourself and a family off of that, I mean, on on multiple different levels, that's just completely not workable and feasible right now. First of all, don't know if you've noticed, but um, Orthodox Catholic, um, the Orthodox Catholic Academy is basically being completely shut down. Um, you're not going to be employable if you actually hold the Catholic faith as a Catholic theologian. Let's let's just get that on the table right now. So why would you go blundering off into that? Um, the the number of places where you could be employed is just is minuscule. It's absolutely minuscule. Basically, the only um, undergraduate program at this point in the United States that I can even begin to recommend is Thomas Aquinas College. They have two campuses. One is in California. Okay, right there we have a problem because that would involve living in California. Why would anyone want to do that? Well, the it's, it's camp- out north of Santa Paula. It's out in the country. And if you don't go into the city, you could you could avoid the mess there. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Thank you for for sticking up for them super nerd um, the, other- the campus is very pretty i'm sure it's i'm sure it's gorgeous i mean california is gorgeous it's just you know ruined by the people and the government and so forth um the other <laughs> the, the campus- problem with california is the californians Exactly. So the problem, and then um, the other campus that they just opened is in Western Massachusetts, the People's Republic of Massachusetts. Again, lovely, lovely in the autumn, I'm sure, but it's Massachusetts. So, you know, nothing, there's there's no free lunch. Literally, literally, those are the only two campuses that at this point I would recommend in terms of, you know, a Catholic education in, in North America. I, we've got a problem here. How are you going to go get a degree in theology? And then you get, you think that Thomas Aquinas college is going to hire absolutely everybody. Sorry, they can't. You're, you're, you're just setting yourself up for tremendous failure and you're setting yourself up for easily six figure debt at this point in order to get a degree in theology. Don't be dumb. Don't do that. Don't do that. If you love our Lord and you want to learn about him, as we all do, 
yes, by all means do that. But don't go, don't go careening and put yourself into, into six figure debt and then get yourself into a situation where you're unemployable. You can't support a family. You're going to end up, you know, doing something that like super nerd was talking about before something that you absolutely categorically hate and don't want to be doing. And you're going to be bitter and miserable, you know, selling real estate or selling insurance or whatever it is that you end up doing. Not Um, that there's anything wrong with selling real estate and insurance. There's anything wrong with that. And that might right. be a decent fallback plan, actually. Sure. I mean, and then that's kind of, it's weird. No offense to, to realtors and, and insurance agents, but it is kind of for a lot of people. It's, a, it's either a second or third or fourth career or some sort of a fallback because something else failed. I mean, aim a little higher, you know, and, and, but the pro the, the issue, the point I want to make is, is in terms of getting a degree in theology and thinking that, oh, I'm just going to go get a job. Well, no, you probably aren't. And if you do, if you don't subscribe to the Bergolian anti-church and all of that, you're probably going to get fired at, at some point in the not too terribly distant future. Just don't, why don't, you got to be able to, you know, look forward and foresee these things a little bit. Don't do that. Don't do that. Well, we have more questions, but um, I think we can split that into a second um, episode in the future. Okay. Um, the The remaining questions probably could be a full. I'm sorry. The remaining questions probably could be a full episode, but uh, I think we, <laughs> Were you we should. Up talking? Were you up talking? Super I'm nerd? catching myself in the act and correcting it at least. Do, do, you, do you just do you just feel like this is that we should probably wrap it up? Do you just feel like we should wrap it up? I literally feel like we should wrap it up. <laughs> All right, I think the, the you email should do address. That. The email address for the podcast where you can send questions, feedback, suggestions is podcast at barnhart.biz. And in look in the show notes if you want to send in a question specifically for an Ask Ann um, podcast because it's, it's something like Ask Ann podcast. It's a, it's a different email address. That one goes directly to me. Ann doesn't see it, so I can pop some of these on her without her knowing in advance. Ooh. Although I did I did run a couple of them by you uh, today with regard to the the – uh, industries and, and possible trades to get into because I, I didn't want that one cold. I wanted you to have a chance to think about that one in advance. But a lot of these, some of these questions are definitely far better if Anne has no idea what, what's coming. Uh, so I'll check the show notes for that email address. But if it's just general podcast feedback, or if you want to give feedback on how does it sound on this episode, because I'm doing something radically different this time, podcast at barnhart.biz. Masses for Anne's benefactors, at least one mass every single day for all the benefactors. And once a week, there is a requiem mass for everybody who died the previous week. Please, please pray for these priests. They absolutely need our prayers more than I can articulate, even though I try to say it differently every single time. Um, please pray for these priests. Um, whether they have degrees in theology or not, they need our Indeed. prayers. <laughs> the Barnhart Podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. If you found something of value in this or previous episodes and would like to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com for more details. There's a mailing address out there. Maybe by the time you hear this, I might um, put a Bitcoin address out there just for experimentation. And if it's not there, if you go, if you hear this and go check, then I cease that experiment. Um, since I said at the top, I don't know what episode number this is going to be. I'm not going to mention any donors because at the moment, I don't know if there are any, I didn't go check the mailbox yet. So there's that going for it. 
Um, that means we're down to the Matthew 1720 initiative and you do that way better than I do. So I'll let you do it. All right. Matthew 1720 initiative, fasting twice a week, prayer every day, obviously that, um, Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-Pope and the whole thing be nullified that Pope Benedict Dratzinger be publicly recognized as having been the one and only living Pope since April of 2005, that anti-Pope Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace, and someday achieve the beatific vision, and that Pope Benedict Ratzinger repent of anything that he might need to repent of, and likewise die in a state of grace and someday achieve the beatific vision. And I would also like to say um, a special thank you to my donors. Um, as, as, as is typical every year around the last week of October, there tends to be a little um, uptick in donations received, especially at the mailbox. And um, I, there were a couple of especially generous um, last week of October donations this year. And it was actually from people from names that I that I didn't recognize and and um, searched my my email inbox and nothing came up and just want to say, you know who you are. Thank you very much. Um, there's one person in South Carolina, especially, that was incredibly generous. Um, God bless you. And again, no, no purchase necessary, benefactors and supporters. And I also want to mention that if you at some point decide that you hate me and that I'm awful and terrible, you still forever in perpetuity, as long as we can keep this going, the benefactor masses will continue to apply to you daily. You Once you're in, you're on the list because God and I, we have an agreement about all this. So um, <laughs> once you're on the list, you're on the list. So I can't thank everyone enough and, and so grateful and God bless all of you. Oh, and remember Christmas is coming up and there are the little, the two little books are for sale and we're going to keep working on books and try to get some, um, some more books put together and available in my little Lulu book paperback bookstore before Christmas. So um, thanks to everybody who has, who has purchased the books. And I can tell, I can see, I can't see any names or any customer information when people buy the little paperback books, but I can see that some people are doing like, there's one, I saw at least one order where a person bought 10, they bought 10 copies of the book. Um, see several orders come through of of three four five copies it's clear that they're buying these things to give them away or <laughs> leave them in doctor's waiting rooms or gag gifts or whatever it is and again um undying gratitude thank you all guys so much for that it's uh it again allows me to get out forward on my rent which lets me sleep quite well at night and i'm eternally grateful thank you all so much and I'll try to get my electronic donation slash order management thing figured out sooner than later because there was that new video coming out. And I think I figured out thanks to uh, somebody I've been emailing how to get the the uh, second video um, done correctly for DVD. So as soon as I get that sorted out, uh, online ordering for that should be restored hopefully within a few weeks. So uh, that look for that. We'll mention it. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. When it happens, well, there will be big splashes both in writing and on the podcast. So, And until next time, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Anne. Thanks, guys. God bless. Bye.